She was to name this son Jesus, and she can't believe it, but not out of disbelief. It's much more out of a sense of how in the world can this happen? I'm just a virgin. I'm not married. And the angel explains it to her, and she goes, oh, good, I get it. I'm your servant. Whatever you say, I will do. And we kind of pick up the story there where Elizabeth goes into five months of seclusion. And it was during that sixth month, after Mary found out, she ran and went to be with Elizabeth up in those Judean hills. And she stayed with Elizabeth for three months. And here's where this story picks up again. When Elizabeth, her waiting was over and her pregnancy was full term, the baby was born and it was a boy. The news of the birth spread quickly to her family, friends, and neighbors. God had showered his mercy upon her. She was no longer known as the barren one, but now as the really, really blessed one. Filled with joy, they celebrated her. And when the baby was eight days old, and all the relatives and friends came for the circumcision ceremony according to their custom, everyone assumed the baby's name would be Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth spoke up. No. He has to be named John. What? They exclaimed. There is no one in all your family by that name. So using sign language and gestures, they asked Zachariah, the baby's father, what name he wanted to give the baby. And he motioned for a writing tablet, and Zachariah wrote, his name is to be John. That took everyone by surprise. And surprise followed surprise instantly. Zechariah began speaking again. His first words were praises to God. A deep reverential fear fell upon the whole neighborhood. And the news of that astounding event not only became the talk of the town, but it spread throughout the hill country of Judea. Everyone who heard about it took it to heart, wondering... If a miracle brought about this child's birth, what on earth will this child become? Clearly, God's hand is in all of this in a powerful way. And then Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He came and set his people free. He set the power of salvation in the center of our lives and in the very house of David, his servant, just as he had promised long ago through the preaching of his holy prophets. Deliverance from our enemies and every hateful hand. Mercy to our fathers. God never forgets. He remembered to do what he said he'd do, doing exactly what he swore to our father Abraham by granting us the privilege of serving God fearlessly, by freeing us from our enemies, and by making us holy and acceptable, ready to stand in his presence forever. And you, I prophesy, my little son, you will be known as the prophet of the Most High. You will be a forerunner, making a way for the Messiah, preparing hearts to embrace his ways. You will present the offer of salvation to his people, the cancellation of all sins to bring us back to God. Through the heartfelt mercies of our God, God's sunrise will break in upon us, shining on those in the darkness, those sitting in the shadow of death, then showing us the way, one foot at a time, down the path of peace. Afterwards, the little boy 
greatly loved by God, grew up strong in his spirit. And he chose to live in the lonely wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. Well, we'll begin the story in a minute, but I'm just going to take this off because it may be a little distracting for you. (laughs) And it is for me. Um, But we have a story, as we see, where Zechariah finally gets this word fulfilled and his first words are praise to God. And it's an interesting story because as you look at the story, there's a, there's a theme of preparation and of kind of waiting and, and silence throughout the whole story. God prepares each of them in the story with a time of waiting and silence. Elizabeth goes away into seclusion for five months. Zechariah waits in silence for God's word to be fulfilled. John waits in the loneliness of the wilderness, preparing his life to introduce the Messiah. And you see this throughout the whole story. So as you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 57 through 61, it says when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son, and her neighbors and relatives, they heard, and the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. I'm reading out of the NIV. People have asked, where, you know, where do you get that book? I've just, in those stories, combined a number of other texts together, and so it's kind of my paraphrase to some degree. Um, and, and it says... They shared her joy, and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, his name's to be John, and they all said, well, what do you mean? They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Now, you have to understand, Elizabeth was waiting and came at full term, it says, and, and finally the child was born, but Elizabeth's waiting wasn't just nine months. She had probably waited for 50 to 60 years. They think maybe she was in her early 70s. And most girls were married around 15, so you can imagine at about 15, she's waiting to have a child to give birth. And through all those years, she's been praying and praying and waiting and waiting and in her own silent pain as she lived being known by people as the barren one. Oh, Elizabeth? Oh, yeah. You mean, you mean the barren one? But then one day, Zechariah comes back and he tells this incredible story about what an angel says and goes through the whole thing and the child's supposed to be named John and he can't speak it so he's got to, over time, convey this message to her and she finally, you know, she gets the whole message and she believes. She trusts what comes from Zechariah. And so when it came time for naming of the baby, and it's that customary eight days where there's a circumcision celebration, which was just what would take place in a Jewish life. So eight days after, they had the circumcision celebration where everyone would just have a great time celebrating but the baby. Um, And there was no other name but one. His name would be John. It was the angel's command. She didn't hear it directly from an angel. She just believed what she was told by Zechariah. And she'd be obedient. So when they said, what's the baby's name? She said, John. And, and then she said, it's spelled J-O-H-N. It's going to be John. And she didn't really care what, what others might think. She, she really didn't care what maybe the brothers and sisters and if her mother-in-law was still alive and the family who were all kind of going, what do you mean? There's no one and we don't even have that name in our family line. Because it was very important to continue to name people in the line. That was just part of what you did. 
But all that mattered to her was what God thought. But there was something more about that name. Because that name capsulized, in a sense, everything about God to her. You see, that, that name wasn't that so much that her, name, her husband's name, Zachariah, was so bad, but that name contained God's promise to her. The name John means God showed mercy, or you can translate it, God gave me grace, a gift. And can you imagine throughout her life, as she had gone through all those years where she had been barren, where she had been in silent pain, uh, waiting and hoping, and then coming to a point where maybe she gave up and just said, okay, God, whatever, I'll be your servant. And now she has this baby, and she names him God Shows Mercy. Can you imagine as this baby is growing up? She's carrying the baby. She's going to the local grocery store, okay? She's there at the grocery store. She's got the baby in her arms. Someone comes up and goes, oh, what a beautiful baby. What's your baby's name? And she goes, oh, God Showed Mercy. And as this baby's growing older, and, and, and maybe the you know, he's out playing with the other boys and it's dinner time and she kind of rings the bell and she calls out and she goes, it's time to eat. God's gift to me. Come home. It's time to eat. Or as he gets older and he's, he's now in, 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 in probably attending the Judean Hills High School and she's there and she's cheering for him because he's more than likely a wrestler. All state, and, uh, and she's getting excited, cheering for her son. And she goes, God shows mercy, rip his head off, beat him. <laughs> now, you laugh at that, but I actually wrestled in high school. My mom was, and your parents would kind of not all sit in the same section with each other. My mom was sitting there, and this other person I was wrestling's parent was there, and that's exactly what she said. My mom was like horrified, thinking my head would be ripped off. Anyway, Liz waited and waited and never would forget God's incredible gift of mercy and grace. For years she suffered in silence. There was no way that no one, no how, would keep her from naming that child exactly what God said that exactly represented her experience with her God. The experience of being barren would one day, though, become a distant memory, right? As that little boy, John, grew up, Always a reminder of love, but yet, you know how things kind of move away. And, and I think about that, and as I was thinking about this part of the story, I, I was thinking about my own life, I was thinking about your life. How often do you pray, and you ask God for something, and, and then it happens, and then it becomes kind of a distant memory? Because we don't name it, and we don't claim it, and hold on to it, and, and say, God, thank you, thank you for showing me mercy, and, and going back to that. It's one of the things that God has been teaching me, um, is to constantly go back and say, God, I know you did this here, and I know you did this here, so I, I trust that you're going to act on my behalf. How about you? Maybe uh, you prayed for a job, and you kept thinking, oh, God, you just, and now it's become a distant memory. Or maybe a school that you were pleading God to get into. Or, or maybe you had a wayward child that you were praying for who's come back to the Lord. Or maybe a broken marriage. Or a marriage that was really struggling. And, and then through um, friends or counseling or whatever, God moved in. Uh, maybe it's an illness and God brought about recovery. And I, I, I got to thinking, 
What's really cool about this story is that in her silent pain and in that time when she was there, God comes along and gives her this gift. And what's neat about that is that gift was named and that name was called out again and again and again in her life and reminded her again and again. His God. Even in a time of silence, I can point to this child. God showed mercy. She waited. And she knew of this God who invaded her life with this mercy and gave that name to the child. And then, verse 62. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote the name John. Immediately his mouth opened and his tongue was set free And he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. And everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what's this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. I want to talk a little bit about silence here. Specifically, those times when you move into a place in your relationship where God seems to be really distant or silent. And the first thing I want you to note is not all times of silence are times where you're being disciplined. It's not because of disobedience or, or a lack of trust. Now, in, in Zechariah's case, God was going to teach him something. We'll talk a little bit about that. But, but God was disciplining, not punishing, but disciplining to teach him more about his own love. But if you think about Elizabeth, she did nothing. There's no disobedience. There's no distrust. And yet she experienced some years of barrenness and silence. You know, every honest believer, if you you really are going to get real about this, you will find at times your faith tested. It may be that when you came to faith in Christ, you had these experiences where God kept opening doors and you were just wowed. You said, this is incredible. And all of a sudden it seems like, what happened? And you might go through those times. Where God seems silent. It's throughout the Bible. Job went through that. Jeremiah did. The psalmist, when you read the psalmist, he'll tell you about his crisis of faith. Some of you as parents, as you watch your kids, there will be times when in your kid's life, God will seem to go silent. And those crises of faith are sometimes even designed by God in order to crystallize that person's faith. To take maybe what's in their head and to begin to move it to their heart. In the Star Tribune a few years ago, I was reading this article titled, Mother Teresa's Letters Reveal Her Spiritual Struggles. Now you think of a person who just made a a name for God and a mark for him and her just pure love. It says in 1942, Mother Teresa made a vow not to refuse Jesus anything. So think about that first. You say, Jesus, you tell me, whatever it is, I'll do it. She made a vow and said, "I, I will not refuse you anything. And starting in 1946... She experienced several mystical experiences and encounters with Jesus, whom she called the voice. And at one time, the voice asked her to serve the poorest of the poor. And and she talked about that time. This was a thrilling time in her life. Jesus was so real and so alive to her. Her life was so full of his his nearness and and, and experiences of his presence. And that she had this kind of just this this closeness and this fellowship that, that was just 
creating and, 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 and preparing her for the work that she was to do. And she says in a letter, I came to India with the desire to love Jesus as he had never been loved before. An interesting statement. I came to India with the desire to love Jesus as he's never been loved before. She was passionately in love with him. And yet no sooner did Mother Teresa start her works in the slums of Calcutta than she began to feel the intense absence of Jesus. A state that lasted until her death, according to her letters. The paradox is that for her, in a sense, to be the light, she was to be in the darkness. In a letter in 1961, Mother Teresa wrote this, Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank when the pain of longing is so great. When the pain of longing is so great, you would think, you know, give up. When the pain of longing is so great, she writes, I just long and long more for God. There are few, says the author of this book of letters, who have suffered such an extended dark night. But the author also stressed the fact that her belief in God never wavered. Just her feeling of connection to Jesus, especially after that intense, those intense mystical experiences where she felt this nearness, I'm sure the distance was just so much greater than some of us might feel. What I'm really grateful is, is um, for for her influence because when my father was in his nursing home, we had a group of people called um, um, Seniors Helping Seniors. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And they had an incredible influence in just being with my dad and just being present with him. And I found out later that the people, the person who actually started that had lived in Calcutta with Mother Teresa and had this sense that they were supposed to do that. So I don't know and I can't explain why it is that sometimes God allows for us to experience such a richness of his presence and then sometimes he pulls away. But I'm going to share with you a few reasons that things could be happening in that way in your life. And the first is that sometimes God uses silence just to strengthen our faith. I'm sure that that, in a sense, was maybe what God was doing with Zechariah. He was teaching Zechariah at a level he had never known before. See, Zechariah had been Bible-trained, he was seminary-educated, he was in full-time ministry as a priest and had served God for a long time. And I think God was leading him into an encounter with his spirit that Zechariah had never quite experienced. I think it's often in those quiet, those what I call wilderness times, that you really learn to trust God. Do you know when you are most thankful You would think it's those times when you feel really blessed and God's just doing all kinds of great things in your life, right? You know, work is going well and and your friendships are good and and, and if you're married, your marriage is good. And you kind of go, and you come and you go, thank you, God, I'm here to praise you. And and, and faith seems the easiest. Do you know when your faith is greatest and your thanks is most? It's when you're here in a situation where you feel like, God, I don't get what's going on. You seem to be silent. You seem to be quiet. That requires a far greater obedience because there's really no emotion pushing it, right? And in some ways, those silences in our life are those times that strengthen our faith. They're those times when, when it's difficult to, to sacrifice and say, thank you, God, for what you're doing. I praise you, God. I'm going to boast about what you're doing and what's going on, that you are working my life even though I don't see it. Hebrews 13, verses 15 through 16 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer God a sacrifice 
of praise. The fruit of the lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget, he says, to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifice, God is pleased. There's a sense, he says, the sacrifices in your time of life, when you're not being motivated by, by the fact that you have this sense that God's doing all these good things for you, but when you're in this place where it's hard, it's difficult, and it's silent, that's the time sacrifice really occurs in three ways, he says, by praising God by what you say with your lips, by doing good, even when someone doesn't deserve it. And then he goes by sharing by taking, instead of being focused on self, beginning to give to others. Sometimes, though, God does not just um, allow for silence, and, and, and we're not really quite sure what he's doing, but as he does it, there's sometimes he, he does build our faith, and one of the ways he does that with silence is he slows us down. Uh, I think of Zechariah. In a sense, when, when all the voices are kind of being quiet and everything... It, you know what it's like when you can't communicate? There is a sense that your world really slows down. I was on a silent retreat just a few years, just about a year or so ago, and um, there was a little paragraph in a book that I was reading that really floored me. I mean, there were lines in it as I read it a couple different times. You know how it kind of just punches you? And you go, oh, okay, God, ah, yes. Sometimes God uses silence to slow us down. In this book written by Dallas Willard, it's called The Great Omission, kind of a play on the words of commission, the Great Commission. And the subtitle is Reclaiming Jesus' Essential Teachings on Discipleship. Willard makes this claim that to be a disciple involves more than what is expected in the church today. In a sense, he's just kind of saying, you know, we, we have this kind of maybe God standards here, but we kind of just dumb it down. He says it involves not only the intention and commitment to follow Jesus, but it involves doing what Jesus did. So it's not just what you intend to do. It's actually taking and taking practices to get better. I mean, I could want to be a good piano player like Mary um, and intend to it, but unless I actually start to practice, I won't really improve in that. And so he says people who take the intention and then match it with, with, with the sense of doing some practice or, or disciplines that form your soul. So here's what he writes. He says, we should not only want to be merciful, kind, unassuming, and patient persons, but also be making plans to become so. We are to find out what prevents and what promotes mercifulness and kindness and patience in our souls. And we are to remove hindrances to them as much as possible, carefully substituting that which assists in Christ's likeness. I thought, well, okay, got that. You've got to do more than talk about it, more than wish about it, more than just intend it. But he goes, um, and he says, many well-meaning people, to give an example, cannot succeed in being kind because they are too rushed to get things done. Haste has worry, fear, and anger as close associates. Now he's getting a little too close for comfort here. It is a deadly enemy of kindness and hence of love. If this is our problem, we may be greatly helped by a day's retreat into solitude and silence. Where, where we will discover that the world survives even though we are inactive. There we might prayerfully meditate to see clearly the damage done by our unkindness 
and honestly compare it to what, if anything, is really gained by our hurry. Now, this is starting to hurt. We will come to understand that for the most part, our hurry is really based on pride, self-importance, fear, and lack of faith, and rarely upon the production of anything of true value for anyone. Now, I realize that this time of year, now, during Christmas, is probably not the best time to talk about silence and being quiet and drawing, withdrawing. And, but I, I tell you, I think in the midst of this rush, I really encourage you, even this week, what does it mean for you to become silent so that you can slow down, so that you can begin to kind of understand what's going on in your life and your heart? What does it mean for you maybe even to now start thinking about what plans you could make after the holiday season and say, you know, I'm going to take some time where I'm just going to I'm just going to get alone and, and be with God and listen. I'm just going to get alone. I'm going to, I'm going to experience some time of solitude. What, what does it mean for you to just say, God, in my life, I'm going to have some kind of regular rhythm of meeting with you, taking a few moments in my day where I stop and I pause and I just let myself slow down. What does it mean for you to say, God, I'm going to take a few moments where I'm just going to let your word as I read it, even though I don't fully understand, I'm just going to ask your Holy Spirit to help me hear that and in that process hear you. You see, I, I really believe we have this sense that slowing down and being silent and, and, and withdrawing a bit in our we just don't honor that at all. We just are constantly moving and rushing. And if you don't, sometimes, just like Zechariah, he may, because he loves you, slow you down. He will use your health sometimes to do that. He will use breakdown in relationships, communication, in order to do that. But he always encourages us to maybe even, before that, to actually say, what is it that I need to do to slow down? Sometimes God uses silence to teach us to listen. So you have the sense that sometimes silence comes, and it's not because of your disobedience or your mistrust, and silence comes, and it's always, I believe, used to strengthen our faith, and it allows us sometimes to slow down so we can really hear our heart and see and hear what God is doing. But that's the other part of it. I think sometimes silence slows us down in order that we can listen to God and hear him speak to us. What I find interesting about Zechariah, without sound, he was unable to hear or talk Zach's conversation was limited to two people in many ways. God and his own heart. He was cut off from all the voices of the world around him. Silence allowed God to be heard, I think, in a way he never did before. I think that may have been what God was doing. I'm going to close your mouth because I don't want you to speak doubt into Elizabeth. She doesn't need that now. I'm going to close your mouth. And I'm going to close your ears. So that your world becomes really silenced out in a sense. So that all you begin to hear is me and your own heart. And I want to begin to do some things in you. I want to teach you to hear me. There's a play by George Bernard Shaw. It's called St. Joan. It's on St. Joan of the Ark. And one of the characters asked Joan of the Ark why the voice of God never speaks to him as she claims to say the voice is speaking to her. You know, she says, you know, God's speaking to her all the time. And he goes, how come I don't hear and, and her response is really simple. The voice speaks to you all the time. You just fail to listen. 
And I believe one of the reasons we fail to hear God speak is that we're just not attentive. We're not giving our attention to him, but to all these voices around us and not training our hearts to hear the voice of God. And so like Zachariah, who was busy in ministry and doing all kinds of things where he was serving, he had trouble, I think, hearing God. So God slows him down, makes his world silent so he can begin to hear his own voice, the voice of God. Now, some of you don't even know that you can actually hear the voice of God. God can actually speak to our hearts. And you might go, well, how does that work? You ever thought about how God actually speaks to your heart? You're going, well, I mean, he speaks to some people, doesn't speak to me. I think that that little line in that play is really accurate because it reflects what Scripture says. God speaks to people all the time. It's kind of like you have these sound waves going all the time. It's a matter of whether you can tune into it. I used to uh, amaze me. Ever think about when you think about a radio? Some of you are old enough to remember you had to kind of dial it in just right. You didn't have all the little buttons. And you would have to dial it in. The more you did, you could get the tune so just you could really hear it. So you may be wondering, how is it that God speaks to us? So I'm just going to try and help you maybe understand. So just pay attention as best you can for just a few minutes here. To speak to someone is simply to direct their thoughts towards something, right? I'm speaking right now, so the words that I'm using are in a sense guiding your thoughts. Okay? As you listen, I'm kind of through my voice and words guiding your thoughts. Or you could take it and not just the words that are being voiced, but actually you could read the words on a piece of paper and they could guide your thoughts. That's what we talk about. And that's an indirect way of, of my speaking to your heart. I have to somehow use some words to begin to kind of get into your mind to get you to think. But think about this. God doesn't need words He doesn't have to rely on symbols. God can directly speak to your heart. Okay, he takes that step out. It would be as if I could just stand here. Do you guys get what I just said? And if I asked you what I, if I was silent for a few moments and in my head, I was saying some things to you, I bet you I get 40 different, 50, 60 different things, right? Well, what's really interesting is, as a finite human being, we have to use indirect means to guide another person's thought. I have to express it in words. But God doesn't. God can directly guide your thoughts without the aid of any intervening sounds or images. Now, what's wonderful is that he, he most guides us when we take the, the, the word of God, and he most guides us when, he, when we look at his, 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 the Bible, and he uses words to guide our hearts. And that's the source. So often when you go, he will direct your hearts, and all that your thoughts are whenever you have them, should, that's kind of the lanes. That keeps you in bounds, in a sense, so you don't go crazy and think stupid and silly things. But listen, C.S. Lewis says it this way. If your thoughts and passions were directly present to me like my own, like I was just showing you, without any mark of externality or otherness, how should I distinguish them from mine? So how do I know, is this my thought, or is this, Kevin, or is this God's thought? He says, you may reply as a Christian that God and Satan do in fact affect my consciousness in this direct way without signs or externality. Yes, and the result is that most people remain ignorant of the existence of both. All I'm trying to do is tell you that in silence, sometimes God speaks to our heart and he can directly speak to our heart. Here's the point. God may be speaking to you. He may be, as C.S. Lewis says, affecting your consciousness while as again, he says, you remain ignorant of the fact that this very thought is coming from God. 
And then as that is going on, you are not then attentive that that is God. And you can't distinguish it sometimes from God's prompting, so you miss it when he's prompting you. And your world may be so loud and so filled with this cacophony of different voices going on that you never get quiet enough to go, is this God's voice? Is this the tenor and tone by which he speaks to my heart? And I think sometimes God allows silence so you can hear his voice in the quiet, still, and uncomplicated moments of silence. God in your silence speaks to you. That's one of the reasons I really encourage people to take time on a daily basis to be quiet before God because when you begin to distinguish what is God's voice, what is the voice, my own voice, what is the voice of maybe a parent that's making me guilty, whatever it might be, how do you begin to say, this is God speaking to me? In fact, when you think about it, in the wilderness wandering, why did God take the children of Israel through the wilderness? That was this kind of place destitute of all this stuff. He brings them to the wilderness and we're told he brings the children of Israel through the wilderness so that they might begin to learn obedience. They might be able to hear his voice. That they might actually um, it says there that they would hear every word that, that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so he brings them. They, they, they actually went out of Egypt and they could, there was a shortcut they could have taken. But Moses leads them right in front of the sea. God does this incredible miracle and then sustains them through it. And part of the reason he brings people through wilderness times and through silence is because it is in those times. Not only is he teaching your faith and not only is he, in that sense, um, slowing you down so you can learn to know him, but he's also teaching you to hear him in a way that you've never heard him before. Richard Foster, in a book called The Celebration of Discipline, says, In our day, heaven and earth are on tiptoe waiting for the emerging of a spirit-led, spirit-intoxicated, spirit-empowered people. All of creation watch expectantly for the springing up of a disciplined, freely gathered, martyr people who know in this life the life and power of the kingdom of God. And he says, It's happened before. It can happen again. He continues, such a people will not emerge until there is among us a deeper, more profound experience of the Emmanuel of the Spirit, God with us, a knowledge that the power of the Spirit, Jesus has come to guide his people himself and an experience of leading that is as definite and as immediate as the cloud by day and the fire by night. He's basically saying, guess what? God speaks to human beings, to ordinary people. He doesn't reserve it for the elite or for leaders or the most important. It's not just for pastors or missionaries or for those who are more spiritual. But the Holy Spirit's been given to you. And it's in silence that he trains us to hear. And sometimes he calls us to go into silence so that we begin to start hearing and paying attention to his voice. So verse 67 through 79, it says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And for a guy who hadn't said much, he says a whole lot all of a sudden. If you just go through, he's got this whole thing. And I'm not going to read through the whole, it's this whole prophetic word. Um, at one point he says that God will enable us to serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness before him in all the days. To give his people knowledge of salvation, forgiveness of their sins, that they will experience the tender mercy of God. And they will be guiding our feet into the path of peace, which is shalom, a wholeness, a fullness, that we will experience the fullness of God. What I think is interesting is in this whole line of being silence and God speaking, it says 
he prophesied. And prophecy is exactly what Zechariah did here. Elizabeth did it. Mary did it. The NIV accurately says that they, he was so filled with the Holy Spirit that he spoke forth the word of God. And when we think of the word of God, we often think of predictive. The word of God spoken in a prophetic way is, is God's word in my heart speaking to your heart. And my guess is many of you have had those kind of words spoken to you. You read a card. You ever read a card when it just, it just kind of go, it was like right to your heart? In fact, the New Testament speaks about the, this gift of prophecy. It's really interesting. Um, it, it says, you know, it, Paul's making a comparison between prophecy and tongues. Do you know that the gift of prophecy is, is mentioned more in the New Testament than any other gift? And I'm not speaking about a predictive gift. I'm speaking about this idea where God puts something in our heart and we speak it out to someone else and it lands on their heart and they go, boy, God just spoke to me. I mean, Kevin said it or someone else said it, but, but God just spoke to me. And again, it's not some kind of this prophetic gift that when we talk about it, and you may have heard about it, it's not on par with Scripture. It's, it's, the word, uh, it's not the Word of God, but it's the Word that comes from God in that sense that speaks to your heart. For a specific time and particular person in a specific instance. And so he gets up and he speaks and he prophesies. Um, and then he praises God, and you see all kinds of occasions where it says it here, and I listed a bunch, I won't list them all. And then we come to verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Um, I think it's really interesting that God took John the Baptist, this child of two people who were learning silence and waiting and experienced the pain of that, and had him go into the wilderness on his own. Isn't that kind of, I mean, it's an interesting thing. He goes, John, I'm going to get you ready to announce to the world. And I'm, 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 I need to pull you aside so that you can do that. So what I wanted to share with you is if you're in a wilderness experience or you know someone that's in a wilderness experience, I'm just going to share with you four things and we'll close with this. Four things that I think can be helpful that is important to know. And the first is this, what I call kind of some helpful hints. Thank God for his love and preparation in this time. If you know someone that's going through a difficult time and, and God seems to be silent or you're in this wilderness or they're in this wilderness, one of the first things you can do is just encourage say, you know what, in this time, it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take work on your part. Don't stop going to church. Don't stop taking time to be with God. But just thank God for his love and that he is preparing you in this time. And the second thing is this, as you're in that time, as you see what all these different um, characters in these Christmas stories did, ask God to teach you. Say, God, in this time, teach me. What is it that you are wanting me to hear? What am I to learn? Where is my faith to grow? And, and here's the most, probably important of the three right now, and that is tell God, like Mary did, I'm your servant. Whatever you're teaching me, whatever you're calling me to do, I'm, I'm going to be obedient and follow you in it. And here's the last thing, and I'm going to just take a moment on this. Praise God that there's more to your story, okay? Don't get stuck in that scene. You ever see that? You know, if you think about getting stuck in a scene, it's just not a good thing to do to get stuck in a particular scene. I mean, everybody in their life have these scenes, but I want you to know that in the wilderness, in a time of silence, that's not the end. There's more to your story. There is more that God is doing. 
You just think about it for a second. It, it would be horrible if, if Joseph got stuck in the scene of being in the pit. Or, or, or you just go along and David, he's on the run. And, and that's just a scene of his life. Or you, you take Joseph, and, 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 and I mean, um, you, you take Daniel and he's in a den. Or, or you take the scene, which is a long extended scene in, in Elizabeth's life. But that wasn't the end of the story. There's more to her story. Or you take even Zechariah, who for a scene was completely mute and unable to hear and speak. Because there was more yet to his story. We didn't get to this point until we read this here. And then his mouth is open. And I just want to encourage you that you may be in a scene and I'm encouraging you do not get stuck. Thank God for what he's doing right now. Ask him to impress upon you what it is that he wants you to know. Tell him, I will be your servant in this time and remember this. Praise God. Because there is more. There is more to your story than the scene that you're in right now. God's at work. And he's working. To do his will as you listen to his will in your heart. I'm going to ask the um, team to come forward and kind of get their places. Um, But as they do, I'm going to ask you to stand for a moment. And I'm going to pray. Your head bowed, I just, before the Lord, if um, in this moment of silence... Just open your heart. And just say, God, is there anything you want to speak to me right now? And as you're listening, and maybe God isn't saying anything, or you're just not clear, just say, God, is there anything you want to say to me in this coming week? I want my heart to be silent so that I might hear you and that my life might be one of praise and obedience before you. And if that's kind of your heart before the Lord, would you just say, Lord, I'm your servant. In your heart and your spirit, just tell him, I'm your servant. I want to follow you. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated.